What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Joe Bonamassa here with another exciting episode of Live from Nerdville. Today we are broadcasting from a very rainy New York City, Nerdville, Gotham. And my special guest is the one, the only, Grammy Award-winning guitar player from Austin, Texas, Mr. Eric Johnson. Thank you, Eric, for um, being on the program. It's a real honor for me to speak to you today. Thank you for doing this. Oh, my pleasure, Joe. Thanks for having me, man. Well, I need to start out by saying, just on a personal level, I apologize <laughs> for stealing basically my entire playbook. It's, I have the two Erics in my life, Eric Clapton and Eric Johnson. Well, I hear it, yeah. When I post videos, people go, it sounds like Eric Johnson. I just want to respond to him going like, duh, it does. I, you know, you've been such a huge influence on me and, and an inspiration for so many years. Thank you very much. And, and again, I am so sorry for stealing all of your Oh, oh man. I, you know, it's, I, we all learn and get inspired from each other. And, the, you know, I, I hear a lot of Eric Clapton in your thing, too, and also B.B. King and Albert King. I think, uh, you know, I'm... It, you draw from different sources, you know, and, and as we all do. And I mean, I went through a period when I was like 15 where I just played Clapton licks note for note. I got a lot of flack for it, too. But, you know, I mean, it's just you you kind of I tell you, I don't I don't know if anybody's coming up with something in totally original. You know, everybody learns from everybody and I'm still learning from everybody. And yeah, you know. Yeah, you know, like um, one of the common things that, um, as I've been doing these interview shows, you know, any, everybody from Walter Trout to Paul Stanley to, you know, I always ask, like, you know, where where does the musical DNA come from? I know you, you, you come from a musical family and you started on piano. And what was your first introduction to like, hey, I think I can really do this. I have a I have an ability to play music and hear things on a different you know, level than just a casual listener. Well, I think when I played piano before I played guitar, it was just, I just enjoyed music and the sound. And, and my, my dad, especially, he loved all styles of music. So I was always being, I was always being presented with just every style of music. So I guess I learned to just love music, any kind of good music. And it wasn't really like, it didn't have to be this, you know, we'd listen to classical, we'd listen to show tunes, we'd listen to swing era. And then, you know, when rock was happening and, and then got in and got into that, and I think it was just the sound of music. And in in that love of it, I just enjoyed the, the 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 thing of just sitting down and making it up as you go along, which kind of got me into trouble because as I was taking piano lessons late in the game, I would spend more time improving on the piano. I go to my piano lessons and I, I wouldn't sight. I would be like kind of jamming on the song you know like this right. oh here's the sonata i was supposed to learn today and i go i don't quite know this part so i'll improv you know and and i get busted for it you know it's like hey wait that's not what's on the paper and, and they actually said we think you should quit to we're not we don't want to teach you anymore because you're not following you know um, which is they're, they're right you know and i think unfortunately my sight reading is not like it should be because i just went into that improv thing you know but it's just that that dialogue of creating that thing you the muse you hear in the present you know and that's what kind of intoxicated me yeah you know I, I i was i think i was discouraged from continuing on my guitar lessons early on for the same reason where i would much rather zone out and play what just came to you know just you just came to your your, your head you know mm -hmm. because you know it, 
to me that was like I'm like this is more fun than yeah. learning something <laughs> for no and and yeah. it, I it, what amazes me today is sometimes improv with the stuff we take for granted and love some 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 people can't improv which is just uh-huh. mind blowing to me they're just like I have to work it out in advance I'm like I don't work anything out in advance I mean right when you, when you come up with like a solo or you know you know, songs like, you know, Cliffs of Dover. Do you kind of jam it out first to kind of work through the structure and then you find the paths that seem to be working melodically and then and then refine it as it goes along? Or do you do you just, you, you plan it ahead? Um, I think it's like, like you say, I, I, I try not to stick to any um, uh, thing at all. I, like I might plan a gist of what I want to do, but almost every single time it'll take a different direction. It's really kind of just of a launch pad to, to come up with some kind of, cognitive idea that kind of gives the vibe but usually if i want to try to make the best solo especially it's you have to kind of let go and just let it happen you know and i'm sure you you probably know that very well you know it's just uh if i stick to what i worked but but i think working working an idea out is kind of a stepping stone because it gives you a, a kind of a um a framework of, of vibe that you want to create, you know? And so, but I, I, I know some records I stuck note for note to stuff I'd work out. And there's some of my least favorite solo and I've done on records, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, how, how big is the live influence on, you know, do you prefer to work the songs out in a live context and then go into the studio or do you prefer to work them out, you know, record them and then go, we're going to make, you know, we'll just go out and improv yeah. and react to the crowd. Yeah, usually it's always been live. Um, lately, I've thought it might be cool. I think that I think it you would maybe present a different um, uh, effect if you did it a different. I don't know, and I thought I might try it different. You know, like you read these stories about how the Beatles would just show up for work at Abbey Road, and they just oh, I got this new song, and they just flush it out to they had it. You know, and there's I there's kind of pros and cons to both ways. And I think something about that is appealing in the fact that it's all new. There haven't been any fingerprints put on it yet. And you just hash it out in the moment and you get this, you get this uh, exhilarated energy from that. So um, that can be kind of cool. I thought it might be neat to try a record that way where you just, you know, come in and kind of just, well, let's lay this on the table and kind of hash it out till we get it. And the Beatles might get it the second take. And then sometimes they'd take them their 25th take, but they would, they they would just initiate the process from the beginning to the end, like right. you know what I mean. That's which I usually don't do. I usually like you know work it like you say, work on it live or sit and you know hash out a little demo and stuff. And which I think in some ways is good, but I guess it's um, there's pluses and minuses to both ways. I guess. Yeah, I've always been of the notion. I've had this kind of rebellious nature about me. It's like whatever I play on the record, I'm not playing live. I just I can't do the same yeah. version. I was like, well, what's the point? You put the record on. Yeah, right. Yeah. Tell me how you tell me how you made the transition from piano to guitar because I know a lot in your chord voicings. I hear like, that's a piano voicing, and these are you know different fingerings that you would find you know than just reading like a Mel Bay book. You know, standard chords. You you came up with your own voicings. How big of an influence was the piano in making that tr- transition to being a guitarist? Uh, it was it's huge for me and I still resort to it all the time usually when I'm writing or kind of getting ideas for songs and even sometimes melodies and stuff I'll I'll play on piano first I like the immediacy of everything at your fingertips on the piano you can kind of do two hands at once but 
I like the sound of the way I love the sound of piano. It's probably my favorite instrument, acoustic piano. Um, and having that uh, uh, more ability to kind of change the chord voicings and kind of look at the big picture is always. And I like the fact that if you take that and put it on another instrument, it gives it a little a flair of uh, uniqueness to it, you know. And I like that. And I think that's what attracted me to guitar. I mean, later on, you know, like I love like, um, like, you know, Bob Dylan and Woody. Well, Bob Dylan was a finger picker, but, he, you know, Woody Guthrie and all, and, you know, Hank Wiz, I, I love that stuff. But for me personally, I was like, you know, I, it's, I, don't, I, I love that stuff, but I want to learn to use articulated voicings for me. You know what I mean? So it's just a personal preference because both are good. But so I wanted to kind of, uh, uh, you know, figure that way to a uh, kind of a pianistic approach, you know. Right. You joined the Electromanics, what, 1975? Uh-huh. Um, and it was kind of a fusion band. I mean, like, when I listen to those records and those recordings, and there's a lot of great, there's a lot of great stuff online, um, I hear I hear at that point, you know, you, you be the impetus of what the legendary Eric Johnson's going to be. But I also hear John McLaughlin, Hendrix, and Jerry Reed. Right. On, on a black Stratocaster. Yeah. Through- and I'm going okay, and I'm you know you really get to see the DNA of your influences. I mean, how big was McLaughlin to you as a, as a as a player growing up? Like when you heard like Birds of Fire, because I oh, love it. That's, that's great. You know, and I love that period because that was when John was using the SG and the Marshall. So he had this kind of, and I saw him live a number of times. And at that particular that particular period, he had like this Eric Clapton kind of uh, cream tone, but he was playing fusion, which that's what really got me into fusion, like Bill Connors, you know, from him. I loved Bill Connors in the first uh, him and the seventh galaxy record. Cause he, he was kind of, he had a, he had a kind of a blues inflection and tone to his playing, although he was taking it somewhere else. So that, that really appealed to me. And I think John in that birds of fire era had, had some of that too. Yeah, he had. To, you know, I I love those kind of fusion records like like Billy Cobb and Spectrum with Tommy yeah. Bolin. Yeah, having the bluesy foil. Exactly. You Tell know, it, it, yeah. It just gives it such an anchor, and you go, oh, I feel it now. You yeah, know? totally. I mean, it's it's it, yeah. I I couldn't agree more. It's uh, it's. I don't know if you get away from that, you you've lost the. I guess you know the building block, or as you say, the DNA. And there's something. I mean, it's something just just in you know intrinsic about that 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 really it, it yeah it, it emotionally even you know like Wes Montgomery I mean he had this you know there was a rhythm and blues it wasn't blues per se but there was a rhythm and blues kind of thing inside his playing and all these cats I mean that's what really kind of draws you in you know do you think you know what's what's more important um technique the ability to play or the tone um well, that's a great, great question. I think, um, um, God, you know, it's, I think that the tone, but when I say that, I don't think the tone has to be perfect. It's not, you know, because so many different tones. I mean, you know, there's certain tones that sound, you know, really gnarly that are just perfect. Like the Brian Jones on uh, uh, Satisfaction or something, you know, that's, that's a, if, you, if you were to solo that tone, it'd probably be pretty gnarly. Right. But it's absolutely great. Or, or like, 
I think maybe I think it's the tone, but I, w- I would probably say the sound, you know, just the sound that 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 captures your heart and, and ear like, you know, like that opening thing that Hendrix does on Monterey Pop before Wild Thing. Right, you know? right. I mean, it's like, oh, well, no, that, that you know, the middle and the amp or no, the chord shorting and that's a gnarly tone. No, but I mean, God, it's like it's so it's like Igor Stravinsky or something. It's just it, that's one of my favorite electric guitar things I've ever heard in my life is that intro, you know. Yeah, and um, I think that one of the most underrated guitar tones, because it gets overshadowed by how great it was as a piece of music, was his, uh, Hendrix's version of the Star Spangled Banner at Woodstock. Yeah. yeah. That sound, it's like, how do you even... I know. And you and look at the rig, and it's like a Marshall and a fuzz face, and you're like, that doesn't sound like that to me, you know? Outdoors, outdoors with no no effects or anything. It's right. like, geez, I, yeah, you're right, yeah. See, I, you know, do you find um, do you find it hard to 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 experiment with tones, being that you are the, known as the guy who invented so many great ones? Do you do you, can you can you can you come out with a record that has like you know thrashy, punkish, you know gnarly sounds, and then people go, oh, it doesn't sound like Eric Johnson? Do you do you feel pigeonholed sometimes? Yeah, yeah, I think it's just by my own doing pigeonhole because you know you get I I think I get I get myopic sometimes in how I want it to sound. Oh, it's got to sound like this, and that's just a it's kind of a rabbit hole, really. I've I've you know honestly wasted a lot of time trying to. Um, you know, make the sound better and better and better and better. And, and that's, you get, I get, I get caught in like a thing, you know, or you spend 80% of your time chasing that and 20% of the time practicing, which is, you know, as I get older, I kind of realize that that whole thing is, is more serendipitous. That it, it just happens kind of through the grace of, of just whatever, you know, and, and um, it's not a thing where you can sit down and kind of with your mind and ego, oh, I'll do this and I'll get this chord, I'll get that thing, and I'm, you know, I'm gonna, you know, it's just, I don't think it works that way. There's a higher element, there's a higher octave going on, and and it's taken me a lot of years to learn that. I've wasted a lot of time because I thought, no, I can hold the paintbrush and I'll push it to the right and left, and it's kind of like, it's kind of like shouting, shouting at the ocean to turn left or right, you know. I mean, it is what it is, and you kind of like to have to surf the wave and. So it's right. been, it's been, I, I wish I'd figured that out earlier, but I am, I'm starting to figure it out now, I guess. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's a process, you know, I mean, tell me about your time as a session, session player, because, you know, I listen to Christopher Cross records, Carol King, some Cat Stevens stuff, among other things. I mean, I, I, I hear you in the, I hear you playing on it, you know, I hear the voicings and I'm, you know, obviously a huge fan. So I, I, it, it catches my ear. You know, was was that? Do you did you find that valuable as, as a as a musical experience playing yeah. other people's music in actually having them tell you it's like no, no we really kind of want it this way and what's right for the song and did, no, did I, I, I love it. I I love that, and I still do it now. I've probably done five or six sessions just in the last month. I love doing that because it, if it's a piece of music you want to get involved in, it it's a matter of like leaving your it's it's not about you it's about what you can bring to make them it's a really good exercise in the purpose of music which is to try to bring something to the music without calling too much attention on yourself but just kind of like um very uh you know uh humbly trying to lift the music you know and and to have somebody tell you what to do i mean i man i mean it's like i i that's really um 
you know, you can look at that two ways. You can like, you know, assign a meeting like, oh, well, they're saying I, I can't play. But no, not really. They're giving you another perspective. And a lot of times, you know, you learn. I, I think always I just did a session for somebody and I turned in a solo that they said that the producer went, this is great. And he played it for the artist and went, I don't want to use that. I would like him to do it again. And I was like, my first thought was, well, the solo was fine. But then I thought, well, let's see. And then he told me kind of articulate what we want. And, you know, it ended up I learned something and I did a better solo. So I think sometimes, you know, listening is more important than talking, you know. And I, I kind of look at it as an, an opportunity for me to grow, you know, by hearing somebody's viewpoint. You know? Right. You know, and, you know, I, I, I met Christopher Cross a few times and I find him to be extraordinarily, you know, nice and humble and talented and you know he was the one that 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 got you the meeting or you know recommended you to warner brothers records back in when i was like 84 that's right 83 84 and that would have that that was the company that made the record tones right and now infamous flexi disc that every <laughs> one of us ripped out of the guitar player magazine put two quarters on the needle to, so it didn't <laughs> skip and went what the hell is this how big a moment was that when you must have known that once all of those elements kind of came together, that that life was going to change at that for you? Well, it, um, things definitely got better. You know, it was Steve Morris that really kind of got things. It was Chris with Warner Brothers. He he got me introduced to Warner Brothers. And then Steve Morris really pushed to get a guitar player to do that thing when right. I, nobody knew who I was. And I, I'm, I'm indebted to Steve for that. But. Um, yeah, I mean, things started, we were able to have a, we were able to ha make a living just going on the road and touring and playing and stuff. So that was, that was an opportunity that I'm really thankful for. Yeah. I mean, you were at that point probably taking advantage of the state of Texas being that it was, it's the size of many countries and you could literally just stay in the borders of Texas and Good, yeah. make a great living. You're like, we're big in Texas. Great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're sorted out. Yeah. What um, what was it like being in the Austin music scene in the early '80s when you had it was all starting to percolate? I mean, yeah. legend after legend after legend. You know, like you know the Vaughn brothers, yourself, and and you know it, all of a sudden people started taking notice of you know Austin's you know this this music scene. Did you all did you guys all go? What took you so long, or was it like can you believe? You know, it's been hiding in plain sight for so many years. You know, it's like, why are we getting all this attention all of a sudden? Yeah, it, it, I kind of wondered when when it was all happening, why why it wasn't uh, more noteworthy in the bigger picture. Because when I would go to New York and L.A., I didn't really see um, much uh, a, a more of a scene happening than in Austin. I remember going out the first time I went to L.A. when as a teenager, there wasn't, you know, I was like, where are the clubs? Where are the bands? It didn't. It just didn't seem like it was as vibrant as Austin. But yeah, ever since I was uh, 14 years old, there's always been tons of clubs and a lot of live music, a lot of great players. There was always, you know, tons of, of great John Stahaley and Johnny Richardson, Jim Mings, those cats I learned to play when I, from when I was 13, 14 years old. And then you know, Stevie and Jimmy, they're playing all the time. And Denny Freeman and uh, Derek O'Brien. Uh, yeah, all the, uh, a lot of, lot of cats all the time. David Grissom. It just, it was happening all the time, you know. Yeah. I always used to, every time when I was a kid, we would go down there and we would play the South by Southwest. This is before it became 
this gigantic thing. It was just, yeah, I think we played the Steamboat, and Chris Duarte opened up for us. And I was in this band called Bloodline, and, and we, you know, I was a kid, and my dad took me around, and I, I see, I saw Derek O'Brien, and I always, I had '58 Strat Envy because he had this really cool, like, beat up, you know, Strat. You know, one of the things about I, I, I'm just as I'm just speaking as a, as a kid from upstate New York who picked up a, a guitar player magazine. In the in in that era, everybody had big hair. Everybody had pointy guitars. They had rack systems and lots of blinking lights and lots of gain and everything. You stuck out so much for me because you played the real guitars. You you. You, you, it was like there was a strat, a real, like at that point, you didn't see a, just a, a strat, you know, a sunburst strat. And, you know, you know, an old Marshall, an old Fender amp, and you were able to put all this together. I, and when I'd come to the conclusion after trying to figure out why my single amp or two amp setup didn't do, didn't sound anything like it, was you had three separate rigs. You had a clean rig. Then you had a, a, a what you call a dirty rhythm, and then you had the full-on afterburner setup. Mm-hmm. How did first of all, as a as a guy who's electrocuted himself more than twenty times, how the hell did how the hell are you still alive trying to hook up all that stuff together? It's it, you know it's yeah it's it's a nightmare. I I wish I could just use. In fact, I'm doing a project now where I just use one amp and and straight in, you know, and I love it. I mean, I love the visceral feel of just playing straight in the amp. When you play a Fender, though, it's <clears throat> it's really it's hard to do that. The pickups are just so weak, and and it's. But I just felt it was necessary to try to cover the basis on the Fender to to uh, to have more amps. But yeah, it's kind of it's. I mark the way all the AC plugs go. So, and that before I, when I go to sound check, I, I, it's kind of bo- a boring thing to do, but I check those every day. So, for, for the reason you say, so you don't get you know uh, electrocuted. Although, I almost did get electrocuted in Hong Kong one time, but right. you know, I mean, it's bad. You know, yeah, I just try to be careful with the way that's plugged in. Yeah. So, so, was there was there like. Was it a con- conscious decision to go with vintage gear? Because it was vintage when you were using it in like '85 and '86. I mean, like your Marshalls were plexi from the '60s. The 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 Fenders and and the Dumble was a modern amp. The the Steel String Singer was yeah. modern, but it was based on an old circuit, you yeah. know. And the cabinets were old. Was it because you just had the pick of the litter in Austin? You can go to you know you can go to you know all the music stores, or was it like no? I actually like this. This is better, oh, yeah. this is well, better yeah, than I'm hearing mean, brand new. Absolutely. I mean, I um, I mean, I, I guess, uh, well, you know, it, I think the more, music has gone a different direction. So the new stuff sounds wonderful for certain types of applications. I think for what I wanted to do, you know, and growing up on like listening to violin players and sax players and pianists, there's a pure tonality um, about it. So as I wanted to use distortion and, and stuff, I wanted to, there to be a certain pure tonality about the sound. And as the function of music, guitar music has changed, that pure tonality has not been such a prevalent, it hasn't been a mandatory issue to, 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 uh, to, to keep. I don't think that, and maybe, maybe it's not necessary for nowadays, but 
I think I, I wanted to use that, that gear because the, the pure tonality of it speaks to me more like a, like a pure tone acoustical instrument. I don't, maybe because it's simply made. And, but I mean, even when I was a kid, I remember my, I borrowed the first Marshall I ever borrowed. I was 15 years old and it brought him to this uh, guitar player in town named Leonard Arnold. And he had like an old Marshall. And I went, this thing sounds great. And then the next year, I pleaded with my dad to buy a Marshall, and that was 1970. And, we, and I remember, I remember getting the Marshall. It showed up in my house. I unplugged it, and plugged it. And went. This doesn't sound like Leonard's Marshall. <laughs> I went. Then it's just. It, and maybe it would be. You know, it's better for you know hard rock or certain other things. It's not really a right or wrong, but it didn't have that same. It was more of a buzzy kind of uh, uh, frizzy sound and. So, yeah, I mean, at that point, and then I just knew, I said, well, I got to find these other stuff. And I just stuck with it because, and every once in a while I'd try something new and I go, nah, it's not the same, you know, it's just. Yeah, there's a big difference between like the, what do they call them, the Black Flag era, um, uh, Marshalls, the JTMs with the, the surround and, and 1970, like it's the same thing. You go, wow, there's, it, there's a, there's a brightness to the later ones that you go, yeah. I don't know what they were hearing. And. Yeah, I, I, I tried to cut the bright cap off the middle control on my original super lead. Shocked myself beyond, you know. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I think this is the bright cap, and I, like, of course, I didn't realize it. Like, even with the amp unplugged, you can actually still get, yeah, 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 get a nice reminder that it is an electrical device. Yeah, right. Here's yeah. here's a here's a question I've always wanted to ask you, as a as a purveyor of guitars and things has there ever been a guitar you 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 saw played and went man you know i want it turned around and somebody sold it out from under you what's the what's the one guitar that you missed oh man let's see um well what would that be um I remember there was there was a there was with well, a couple I think of there was a recording studio in Nashville I don't remember they might have been I, I can't remember what it was but this is 20 30 years ago and they had a 54 Strat in there that was amazing but um it I, it was not achievable and and I remember uh, you know I remember some Les Pauls that cats would bring out that were really special and they say hey you want to plug it in <laughs> you'd plug it in and it would be like unbelievable you know and they go well somebody else wants to buy it that kind of thing you know but. Uh, um, you know, I, I've had a couple of strats in my, my time that, that were really, you know, like that black strat was a wonderful guitar. And, and then the, my original 54 was just absolutely wonderful. And I think at the time, I just thought that's the way all strats sounded. And I didn't really think it was anything special. And, you know, with the black strat, I, uh, that was right in the 80s when they started making new improved pickups to Marzio and all this stuff. And I just like ripped all this stuff out and put this stuff in. <laughs> I screwed, like ruined the guitar. Right. I ruin it, but I, I just changed what it had. And and I and I, I guess I learned that if you get a special instrument, it's kind of a it's it's a it's a blessing. It's a it's like grace. It's like here, this is for you. You know, maybe for somebody else, it would be an instrument that wasn't good for you, but. I think a lot of times that we get, we might, if, you know, if we're trying to do something and we get handed these little tools that work for us, but at the time I just thought, oh, this is just the way all guitars are, you know. You know, I've had, I, I made the mistake years ago and I, and I never, never repeated it. I let somebody, I had a, I had a reissue Les Paul that it was a really nice instrument. It, it sounded mm -hmm. good. And, and of the other reissue, I had another reissue as a backup and it was, there were two, two different things. One was special. One was, one was average. 
Mm-hmm. And a guy came in and said, hey, I got these pickups, right? Let me let me throw them in this thing. If you don't like it, we'll just put the original ones back. And I said, oh, yeah, no problem. And yeah. I, I'm the one that I really liked. Yeah. Well, he put the pickups in. I'm like, no, nah, this isn't working for me. It's, it's yeah. it, it was like it was like dealing with ice picks. I said, no, let's just put the original pickups back in. Didn't that did not sound yeah. the same? It's Isn't so- that crazy? I know. It's it's it, there's a real uh, fragility, I think, to the to the the alchemy of all that stuff. It's almost like uh, walking into an e- a very sensitive ecosystem in nature, and you know, like the Native Americans would just like you know they have their hands upwards and they would just they'd appreciate that energy and walk with moccasins, you know. And I think. A lot of things in life are that way, and they're kind of bestowments to us. And you know, to to yeah, to learn those that lesson to where hey, you know what? Something just happened that this is working, and I need to appreciate that and just do my task at hand, which which is try to be inspired and write music instead of like trying to figure out, you know, why something, why, where, when, all this mental energy, you know. And I, right, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I, I mean, to be honest, I, I've wasted a lot. Well, I don't know, if, I don't know if it's waste because I've learned life lessons, right? But I spent a lot of time, you know, sawing stuff in half, and why does this do this, and can I make it? Bad? It's like, wow, it's just like a, it's a lot of overthinking that just wastes time, you know. Yeah, I, I, I remember I, I was sitting there thinking I was probably 28 years old, and I had to do the gig that night, and I was just cursing what used to be my favorite guitar, and I ended up after that tour I sold it, and I'm, literally those pickups were out of that guitar for 30 minutes. And after that, I said, I'm never, ha- I'm never happy. That's never never happy. Again. Yeah, I so, know. Tell me, what, what's the one guitar you wish you had back? Well, I wish I'd never sold my 54 Strat. Um, and it's kind of, to your point, that's kind of what happened with it. I, I took a, I was in like Cleveland or something, and I, I was doing sound check, and I fell. And it broke the whole pit guard and the knobs and stuff. And I had to take it in to get a new pit guard and a couple of new knobs. And over the years, I I had like the, the wiring inside was like a rat's nest, but I never did it. It was terrible, but I but it sounded great. And I did, you know that was a guitar I used on all Obvious Miscom. And when I took it into this shop and they um, they put a new volume knob in and a new pickguard, and said, and they went, oh by the way, we rewired the whole guitar for you because it was just really done terrible. <laughs> and that guitar never sounded the same to me. You know, same thing. Right. But I you know I should have like just chilled and been patient and go, you know what, just relax, put it in the closet, you'll find another pickguard, whatever. You know, instead of like I just like I freaked out and sold it. But I wish I hadn't sold that guitar because it was a great guitar. I bought my first vintage guitar was a 1954 strap because you had one. And my grand, my great grandmother left me some savings bonds, and I ended up. She left me like five thousand dollars, and I spent forty four hundred dollars on a hardtail nineteen fifty four Strat. And I was out as a kid playing gigs, and a couple of these guys would go, you know, you can't, you, you should change the Bakelite, you know, and all the knobs and everything because they're very frail, and it, you know, you'll 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 lose money and your, you know, whatever. And I said, Eric Johnson uses the Bakelite knobs. You know, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep them on. And to this day, I use I use the I use the bakelite. I've had them fall off. I've had them crack in half, but I glue them back together and just yeah yeah. I used to carry around super glue on the pit guard, and I would just like glue it. It was just like spider webs. But when I took that fall, it it fell out of the guitar. But yeah, I know it's uh, yeah. Um, tell me about your new album. I I I bought it in February, Volume Two, and um, you know we all know everyone knows you. It, it, 
incredible legendary electric guitar player but um you know starting you know like even the avia music com you know the, the your acoustic playing is fantastic and um the, the your new album like you know really showcases your piano playing and your acoustic i mean there's some really killer jerry reed stuff you know on there and really you know almost um getting into kind of like baroque and you know and and these really intricate passages like tell me like you know why now to make a record like that i think it's stuff that i've always i've always done at home i've always played piano songs and acoustic songs and um it's always been something i've loved because i grew up on that stuff as well as guitar players um i don't i don't know i guess i, I don't know if it's the stuff that that some of my uh listeners want to hear though you know what i mean i mean they want to hear it if it's part of the other thing and um, so I don't know if, you know, making a all acoustic or an all a piano record is, is the best thing to do. Maybe it's better to just mix it up, but I just wanted to make a record that, that would, would push me to try to think, think about the songwriting and, and, and the, the message and that kind of stuff. And, 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 and also I think it's almost like it's, a, um, it's a means to an end for me to reprioritize what's important, which is trying to, I'm trying to you know, let go of like, oh no, you want to go in and do the solo 50 times and polish it to death and make it perfect. Now take a different tack where, what do you have to say? Does it, does it connect with somebody's heart? And if you get that really strong, because that's like 90% of it. And then if you want to add all this other stuff, like some good guitar playing, that's all well and good. But, you know, it's kind of like, you know, I mean, as much as I love every single Hendrix record, and I really do, I mean, he's like my hero. There's something about the Axis Bowlers Love record that that is, it's to that point. It's like the, it pushes the focus of the of the lyrics and the songwriting so much. And there's really not a lot of crazy guitar on, not like uh, Electric Layland or something. You know what I mean? And, and so I think that there's something about the positioning of of what's important. It's so beautiful when you do that. And, and having all that other stuff is great if you can do it in a way that doesn't take away from the, you know the other part. You know? Yeah, that's what I always admire about you. Like. You know, we've all done Hendrix covers, but you do the really obscure ones, like One Rainy, One Rainy Wish, Are You Experienced, uh, um, Spanish right. Castle Magic, you know, and do your own take on I, I, Do you like records that feel nonchalant and unpolished, or do you like records that are, that are, that are pretty, you know, put together? You know, the difference between like a Muddy Waters and a Steely Dan approach. Well, you know, and I was thinking of Steely Dan as you said that. No, I mean, and there's there's the disconnect with me. I think that I, <clears throat> I was really my my whole uh, thing was to make records that were as spot on and and antiseptic, but that would a lot of times be too antiseptic. But I, they would have to. I would try to perfect my record so much. But the the humor in that is that all the records I love are not that way. Right. And there was a real disconnect with the kind of records I wanted to make and the kind of records I loved. I mean, I like to listen to the ones that there's some Stevie Wonder records like Music of My Mind where on Superwoman, where the bass, the art bass, he completely screws up and he left it. And it's so I love it. It's like, well, here you are loving this. But then I would never do that on my record, you know, and, and so it's a real it's kind of like an epiphany for me to go, you know what, I need to start putting that in what I do and kind of letting it go because you, you pay a price for that polishing, you know, and, and I, it's, it's a hard lesson for me to learn, but I'm trying to learn it, you know. When did you know Avia Music Com was done? When did you go, okay, 
it's done. And by the way, it's a classic record. I, in my opinion, every every track on that is a classic. And the the work that went into it, you could hear every song, but it also swings and you're 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 taking chances and and the writing and the the, the everything. When did you know that it was like okay, I'm gonna hand it in now, and and that's it. Well, you know, it's I mean, I, I to be really honest with you, um, the very last um, month, a uh, couple of weeks of that record, I would say I got so sick and I was so stressed out that I couldn't even come in the studio anymore. And Richard Mullen, who um, wonderful engineer that I worked with, he had to graft. I had done demos of the whole record and then we we did the record and um, I got I was so kind of just burnt out i couldn't i would go in the studio for 30 minutes and just say richard i gotta leave i can't even be here so he had to graft there's there's a there's literally several lines in 40 mile town and there's um several lines out of nothing can keep me from you i think that he actually graft the vocals from the demo and put on the original because i I couldn't even come in and finish the record but i think i just burned myself out on that record i um that was one that i had a real exact vintage of vision of what I wanted to do on it and I just pushed myself until I I got what I heard in my head and and uh, but it, it was done a few weeks before it was done because I just I was done <laughs> you were done you were done. okay yeah right Richard you take yeah I have a question for you I've always wanted to ask you um there's a great live show that you did at the bottom line in New York City this had to been around 1990 1991 and it's all of, it's the stuff from Tones and stuff from Avia Musicom. Have you ever thought about releasing that? Because it has a great song, Mountains, which is one of my favorites you've done. And and do you ever think about releasing that? Because it's like it's such a snapshot of like that era. I'd love to. Um, yeah, I'm, I don't know where the masters to that are. I wonder if the bottom line uh, the bottom line didn't exist anymore. But I'm not sure. I'm, I'd have to check where the uh, yeah. Love to. I have to find the masters, I guess, and see. Yeah, it's a it's a great thing. So I'm to 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 recap. I'm gonna just I'm gonna name a song. These are my favorites. I'm selfishly doing this, and then um, and just tell me, just tell me what you think of the song. One of my favorites, "Battle We Have Won" off of Venus Isle. Love that song. Love the voicings. Love the chords. Where did that come from? You know, um, and I guess maybe I shouldn't. Get it going to a big diatribe about this, but when I finished Venus Isle, and they were like, "Well, what do we want to release the radio?" and I pleaded and pleaded and pleaded with um, Capital to release Battle We Have Won. I said, "This is the song I want to, you know, we can edit it, make it shorter, whatever you want to do, but this is the one, please, you know." And um, they they refused. They just because it wasn't my thing, you know. <clears throat> so they wanted to do SRV. Oh, it, it, that kind of broke my heart in a way because that that song was important to me. Um, excuse me, but uh, I don't know. Just kind of like um, you know, life's turmoils and and tribulations that that they we you, we can use those to hone the metal of our lives, you know, and and you know, like ever we all we all go through stuff like that, and we can be. Um, healed from it so that it was kind of that it, I was really it was it was kind of a thing that person it was a personal thing that I just wanted to say you know and um, so that that's kind of why I did that and you know it's interesting over the years I've had a lot of people say that they really 
that that song meant something to him. And I, and I really, I just wanted to, I, you know, it wasn't whether it was successful or not, but I just wanted to put that out there with Capital as the song from the record. But, you know, I think that's the music business. You know, you get known for a certain thing, you know, and that's what you're supposed to do, you know. It, because they followed up Cliffs of Dover, which was a huge radio hit with, uh, I believe it was a Righteous. It was a, a, another instrumental. Right, and, right. And to me, you have a great singing voice. My favorite Eric Johnson songs are you singing, you know, um, song like Friends. And as I was reading about you, I now I, I know your family spent some time in Africa, you know, in the 70s and in the night out. And like, oh, OK, that makes that that intro and, and everything, how it kind of just crossfades. That makes a lot more sense. And it's one of my favorite songs off of Tones. Thanks. Well, I, I love your vocals. I, I, that, I appreciate the compliment. But I, um, I, Desert Rose. How that's the that to me is if you ever feel good about your playing, put that song on either live at Austin City Limits or off the studio album and you immediately go, I have so much more work to do. That's that's my humbler track because yeah. it's just a, it's just burning. It's burning. Oh, thank you. Um, do you do you um, do you still enjoy playing those those solos today? You know, because I I there. you 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 hit the marks. You know, you do okay. You got the you got the tones and the everything. You you still you still get a kick out of that. I do because it's all improv. There's a there's a couple of licks that intro the the solo or come out of the solo, but the rest of it's just different every time. You know, right. it's all, all, so that makes it fun to me. I I think, you know, as as um, as the case with your your thing, you know, it's that just being able to improv and and have it be fresh all the time. That's that's a big that's huge, and it, it does it reinvests your your passion and joy in playing. I think. Yeah. I'm about to change my rig. I decided the pandemic is, is I'm going to change it. I'm going to come back with something else. Celebrity question. I reached out to my friend and yours, Mr. Anton Fig, who oh, we know and yeah. love. And I said, hey, do you have a question for Eric Johnson? Um, he comes back with, how does he get his clean reverb echo sound when he does his quiet ballad playing? And will I sound like him if I can get the same sound? Yeah, of course, Anton. Yeah, yeah, man. Oh, yeah. It's just uh, you know a lot. I, I I just turn down the volume on the guitar sometimes, and then they crank it up to the PA, so it sounds a little cleaner. Yeah. And do you believe that Anton Fig has the ability to play like Eric Johnson on the guitar? Um, I think if he just if he took up guitar, he probably would because he's a great drummer. Hopefully, hopefully he'll stay on drums. So we don't need another. But uh, no, I know he plays guitar a little bit. He brought out a guitar uh, to one of the gigs once. But uh, yeah, yeah. It's, I think I think the world has enough guitar players. We need we need we need we need we need Anton to stay behind the kit. So if you change your rig, what do you think about like a wall of Gorilla amps? Remember those? I, I, you know, I was messing around with this this you know because I had a lot of time. I'm messing around with this Boss power attenuator that has effects oh yeah yeah but it has effects where you can go out of the amp it, it, it's like it has good effects without having to use a loop you know on old amps you don't want to start drilling into them and it really affects everything yeah i was like i just this is you know i i i don't know i i want to play quieter and i want to i want to 
get out, you know, from under the whole like, okay, well, it's just it's the same rig every time, and 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 it just drives you to a different place. Absolutely, no, that that's great. I I I I listen to all different. Like when you use the, uh, you used to have those four twelve cabinets, right? Either the twin, but it's all great, man. It's all and it's beautiful to change it up. There's all there's this, you know. It's you know it's the thing about music. I think you can kind of free yourself, you know, if you just realize the the potency and the beauty of all. You know, if you look behind the curtain and you feel the verb or you feel that emotion or that heart behind the music, you go, "Wow!" You know, uh, Pinderecki and Stravinsky were great, and you know, uh, Link Ray was great, and and um, you know, Stockhausen was great, and you go, "You know what? Richard Carpenter was great." You know, I mean, you listen to the the, the you know, it's like it's all beautiful because it's from the heart, awesome. and I think it's stuff you know. A lot of times I struggled, but I'd hear some song that might not appeal to me, you know, like, well, that's kind of funky. But then you listen back behind it, you listen to the heart of the soul, you go, oh, I get it. There's a certain, there's a, there's a tangible energy going on. That's what people, that's what they want, you know. And uh, I mean, it's beautiful what you do because you, you, you see the bigger picture with that when you do, you do a show, you know, you, you play guitar, but you play songs and you sing and you, you have this thing that's, hemispherical you know and you get that effect when you're listening to your shows you know it's not like you're just going out to hear somebody play some licks you know right and that's right. that's i think you know you, obviously you get that and you present that and that it's it's beautiful you know i always say that's the other guy the guy in the suit comes out between eight o'clock and ten o'clock after ten o'clock i go back to this guy Eric, I can't thank you enough for being on the show. Thank you very much um you you know it's it is not news to you how much you know People like myself and Eric Gales and and uh, generations of, of guitar players have 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 looked up to you as a as a as a mentor, as a friend, and as a musician. And, and it's it's a it's an honor to talk to you. And it's an honor to call you my friend because I go you know like it's the two Eric's in my life: Eric Clapton, Eric Johnson. That's that's it. And BB King. So. Oh yeah, yeah. He, yeah. He's the greatest. He's, he's the greatest. Great. So thank you for being on. Ladies and gentlemen, the great Eric Johnson. Thank you for watching. Until next time, this has been live from Nerdville in New York City during a hurricane.